I'd like for you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, last week I had you read this passage with part of what we were studying. And um, uh, today we're going to look at it, verses 3 through 5. I'm putting a message here because I don't want to forget this before we leave. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness... He called night, and the evening, and the morning were the first day. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you and we bless you for the privilege and the opportunity that we have here today to open your word, to come to your word by faith, to trust that every word that you have given us, Lord, in the scriptures is true. And we stand upon that truth today, knowing, Lord God, that if this passage and these passages in this chapter and in this book are true, then all of your word certainly is. And therefore, we know that you not only have the power to create as this chapter teaches us, but you have the power to change our lives as you have done in many of us. And you continue to do so. And will continue to do so until the day of Jesus Christ. To change the lives of people. Those who are hopeless and without purpose. And without true spiritual life. To give them hope and purpose. And the reality of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. In whose name we pray this morning. Amen and amen. Years ago, back in the uh, Super 70s, how many of you remember the Super 70s? I talk about, uh, you know, the time, the culture, the music, and all of that. You know, raising your hands, you've just kind of dated yourself. But back in those Super 70s, Billy Preston sang a song entitled... Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. But you've got to have something if you want to be with me. All right. <laughs> but it's that first phrase, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. And looking back, it just makes me wonder whether Billy was indoctrinated in the theory of evolution. And I only say that be, uh, based on some statements made by, by leading evolutionists concerning their assumptions on the creation of the universe. And since we dealt with the scientific principles of cause and effect last week, I I thought it important to mention that nothing, quote-unquote nothing, is the preferred cause of the evolutionist. Now, the people that I'm going to mention today are very bright people. They're very intelligent people. They're scientists. And they get involved in all kinds of interesting scientific uh, uh, ventures and endeavors and theories and all. That if they, you know, if they keep their mind on, on, on their particular areas, 
you would say that they uh, actually uh, are, are helpful to, to us. But as soon as they start trying to use their science to uh, give some indication of how things were created and how things were made, they start getting into, to, into an area where they don't sound so good. So I mentioned that because uh, of two men that uh, I want to mention here. Alan H. Guth, who is from MIT. I mean, if you are a teacher at MIT, I mean, you have to be a very bright person. Alan Guth from MIT and Paul J. Steinhardt from Princeton are architects of something that is called the inflationary model of the universe, which is a twist on the Big Bang Theory. And these two men, uh, cooperating together, have written this. It is tempting, and I, and I quote, it is tempting to go one step further, and they're speaking of this Big Bang Theory, it is tempting to go one step further and speculate, notice, speculate, that the entire universe evolved from literally nothing. Nothing from nothing. Leaves nothing. And then another very bright man, Edward Tryon, a professor of physics at Hunter College in Manhattan, no, he's known for his proposal that the universe is a large-scale vacuum energy fluctuation. And for having also been quoted as saying, the universe is simply one of those things that happens from time to time. He also said this, and I quote, that our universe had its physical origin as a quantum fluctu fluctuation of some pre-existing true vacuum or state of nothingness. Unquote. Now, by definition, everybody needs to know this. By definition, nothingness is that which does not exist. So having heard these things from very bright people, very intelligent people, having heard these things, it is tempting to believe those things, not because of science or cause and effect law, but because of the philosophical presumption of naturalism. And there are, you know, there are a lot of evolutionists, of course, who've, who come to embrace naturalism. But now you've already heard that, and you've already noticed that evolutionist conclusions are somewhat absurd. absurd. Now here's the last quote, at least, from these types of scientists by a physicist who actually teaches at Arizona State University. He's a British uh, physicist named Paul Davies. And he's done research in quantum field theory and curved space-time. Uh, yeah, you've got to be really a brain to kind of deal in these kind of, of, uh, of sciences. But this is what he said. And I quote, This quantum cosmology provides a loophole for the universe to, so to speak, notice, so to speak, spring into existence from nothing without violating any law of physics, end quote. Now here's the question to ask Paul Davies. How can nothing violate anything if nothing exists? You see the problem. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, the observations of natural science are generally taught and thought to have disproved the Bible creation or the biblical account of supernatural creation. However, 
naturalistic alternatives to God's supernatural creation have themselves become more and more suspect as our scientific knowledge has increased. The, the uh, general theory of evolution, uh, for example, has been increasingly contradicted by the observations of natural biologists during the last century. So consider the words then of microbiologist Michael Denton. He is not a creationist and he's not a Christian. But this is what Michael Denton writes. He says, throughout the past century, there has always existed a significant minority of first-rate biologists who have never been able to bring themselves to accept the validity of Darwinian claims. In fact, the number of biologists who have expressed some degree of disillusionment is practically endless. Now, you'd probably expect these kinds of words from a creation scientist, but the fact is, Denton, as I said, is not even a Christian, let alone a creationist. So what he and a growing number of natural scientists are saying is that what can be observed by science actually contradicts the theory of evolution rather than proving it. Now, even with all the amazing discoveries made by astronomers, they still cannot explain how the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars could have evolved into their present form by natural processes. No, they have to go into the fact that something happened, we don't know exactly what, but we speculate, you see. Geologists and paleontologists, now these are the men who get down there and look at rocks. Geologists and paleontologists have failed to explain how the huge fossil layers were laid down, how mountain how mountains rose from the sea, why dinosaurs became extinct, why all missing links have disappeared, and how the Ice Age began. They cannot give us a purely scientific answer to these questions. Anthropologists have failed to bridge the gap that separates the lowest man, now think about this, the lowest man from the highest animal. Isn't that an interesting thought? I don't know about you, but I did go to school with some people that were thought to be the lowest, you know, man, close to the highest animal. But today they're running million-dollar corporations. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. On top of all of that, though, biologists and geneticists have failed to explain how life could have arisen spontaneously, how the DNA code was formed. Why all living creatures reproduce after their kinds. And how the theory of evolution can be true in light of the second law of thermodynamics, which we talked about last week. And it states, of course, that disorder and not order increases with time. Disorder, we called it entropy. It increases. Everything, in other words, is going downhill. They can't explain because evolution has to be going what? uphill. Everything is following more into order because of evolution. Instead, the second law of thermodynamics proves that everything is going downhill. And so the observations of natural science do not disprove or contradict God's supernatural creation in Genesis chapter 1. And as we have considered in the past couple of weeks, we believe the account, the, the creation account of Scripture, not because we were there to readily observe it and tested by experimentation to be so, but because God declared it so with great authority when he said, and, 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 and allows Moses to write, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, without skipping a beat, 
He makes clear that all that was needed to form and construct the universe was spoken into existence by God and the Spirit moved upon the materials that were created with energy as we see in verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved, brought life into the things that were created. And it says moved upon the face of the waters. And one thing I have yet to mention is that the book of Genesis is by its very name the beginning or origins of many things. We'll see a lot of first things take place in the book of Genesis. The beginning of the universe, the beginning of the solar system, the beginning of life, of man, of marriage, of evil, of sin, of language, of government, of nations, religion, and so on. In other words, This is the foundational book. This is the foundational book for us to learn from and believe what God has said. It is the foundational book to learn from and believe what God has said. It is basic to our belief in God's Word that we stand on the five books of Moses. It is called the Torah in the Hebrew. It is called the Pentateuch in Greek. The five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is, our, it is basic to our belief in God's Word that we stand on the Torah and believe that Moses wrote these books under the leading and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God speaks for itself. And in the very words of the resurrected Jesus, we are told this. And, and, and actually, this, these are, this is a commentary by Luke in Luke 24, verse 27. But it is, what, it is what Jesus said to the men, or the people actually, who were on the road to Damascus, uh, I'm sorry, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Luke comments in verse 27, and beginning at Moses, notice, and beginning at Moses. That's significant. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets... Jesus expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So if Genesis isn't true, then can Jesus be who he says he was? The resurrected Jesus spoke to the people on the road to Emmaus and said to them, from Moses and the prophets, he spoke to them about himself. In Moses is the book of Genesis. Notice in Luke 24, verse 44, he said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. But of course the true author of all scripture is the Holy Spirit. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. That's literally what it says. All scripture is God-breathed. When we consider the breath of God, we consider the Spirit of God. So all scripture from Genesis on, is God breathed. 
Peter also adds to this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21, through 21, when he says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arises in your heart, or arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Stop there and think about how many people say, well, you know, what I think about the Bible is this. You know, the Bible was just, it's just a bunch of stuff written by man. That's a private interpretation. But I want you to notice, it says, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so, that is our understanding of all of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. And so as we enter into the specific days of creation, we see that God deals first with the darkness. God deals first with the darkness. Remember verse 2. What does it say there in verse 2? It says the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. We just, we just said simply all the materials were made, but nothing was formed yet. Energy had not been applied until verse 3. And that's what brings us to verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Literally it says in the Hebrew, and God said, light be, light was. That statement, and God said, is one of those statements that if you, if you are really marking into your Bibles here today, that's the statement you want to circle, circle or underline, and God said. Because you'll find it, of course, throughout much of Scripture, but especially in chapter 1, you're going to run into that, that uh, statement ten times. And God said. Now, isn't it interesting that we'll find it ten times? Because ten times, God saying something... He's saying commandments. He's giving commandments here. He's giving commands. Ten commands. He states. So what it does introduce for us is God's first set of commandments. Not one of which has ever been broken. Light be and light was. Everything He spoke, He spoke into existence. And when He spoke it, it came into being. Ten times. So we can say not one of those commandments was ever broken. And what a contrast to the second set of commandments that were given to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, not one of which has ever been kept. Anybody here ever kept all ten of those commandments? Not one of us. Except by God's incarnate Son Jesus. He kept them all. Jesus kept all the commandments. So this is the first record of God speaking in the Scriptures. And God said. We can relate the creation with the person and work of God in the very first three verses this way. And I've mentioned also, I've already mentioned, I should say, uh, that uh, we see the work of all three persons of the Godhead in creation. Here's a good place to see it. In verse 1, God the Father is the source of all things. In verse 2, God the Holy Spirit is the energizer of all things. And in verse 3, God the Son, who is the Word, the Logos of God, He is the revealer of all things. 
light be and light was. And you begin to realize that connection with light as you understand what the scripture says about light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6, Paul actually goes to that creation story, comes to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. And he says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a powerful statement by Paul who says, God, who commanded the light to shine in the darkness. Why does he say that? Because he believes it. And he trusts it to be true. And then, of course, we know what it says in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We read verses 1 through 3 a couple of weeks ago. In the beginning, again, that phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Remember, the Word is the Logos. Uh, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. So he says in verse 3, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and please take note of this, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The darkness that was existing when Jesus came into this world in the flesh. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That's why it says in verse 11, He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. You jump over to John chapter 8, verse 12, and it says, Then then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth Me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I mentioned last night, by the way, this is just a real big parenthesis here, but I mentioned last night that uh, uh, if any of you have heard that, about that controversy that's happened this last week about a scope company that was making scopes for the uh, military, uh, they, they were putting, actually in, uh, uh, engraving uh, a scripture reference, uh, much like uh, In-N-Out uh, hamburgers uh, uh, put uh, you know, John 3.16 on their drinking cups over in California, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, but not here in Texas. But anyway, uh, but, anyway but, but they were putting, this is, the, this is the verse that they were putting on. I was looking at it and I noticed John eight twelve, and this is it. I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. By the way, the law came down on them. The PC police told them they can't put uh, scripture on your scopes, you know. But we'll talk about that another time. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Then one other uh, uh, passage, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, the first letter of, of John, verses, uh, verse 5 in chapter 1, This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So now we know really what the source of light is. is God Himself, but... But there, is, there has to be a distinction. Please understand this. That the distinction between Jesus as light and the light created as, as that when light appeared so that you realize that Jesus wasn't created and certainly God wasn't created and yet God is light. Nonetheless, there has to be a distinction between them and between the light that was created. Uh, that distinction is that God divided the light from the darkness. God, God divided that light from the darkness. In other words, darkness wasn't removed completely 
so far as the earth was concerned. And that's the point. As far as the earth was concerned, darkness wasn't removed completely, but only separated from the light. And then the Lord carefully defines his terms. So it makes it very easy for us to understand why that statement is made that way. If you look at verses 4 and 5, it says, And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Again, notice, light from the darkness does not remove darkness completely. Why? Because notice verse 5. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, as though the Lord was anticipating some future misunderstanding here, he carefully uses the word yom, Y-O-M, in the Hebrew, yom, for day. How many of you have heard of the statement, Yom Kippur? The Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Well, Yom means day. Now, it it describes really a 24-hour time period that is broken up into day and night. Uh, It could be more specific, uh, as long as the sun is shining, that is a Yom. But, uh, you know, it's divided, again, a whole day of 24 hours. Uh, Only, always, consistently through scripture a yom is a day so God is defining that and making it very clear for us that a yom is day and he distinguishes now that light uh, so as to distinguish it from the darkness that is called night and those who hold to what is called the day age theory day age the way you want to write it down is day slash age theory uh, that This is another theory that uh, uh, we talked about the gap theory last week. If you remember the gap theory between verses 1 and 2, that uh, the theistic evolutionists, they, they want to believe that God created the earth, but he used evolution to create it. They have to have this whole big gap between verse 1 and verse 2 of time, usually millions or billions of years, that within that time God was then able to and you know form the earth. Well, this is another theory. It's called the day-age theory. And those who hold to what is called the day-age theory, uh, which is another attempt to add millions or billions of years to the Bible account of creation by stating that the day is actually a long period of time. Some of them will try to use what it says in Second Peter chapter 3, where it says that a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So that's only a thousand years. Others will, will want to stretch it for some other length of time. Well, they have, with all due respect, willfully and ignorantly ignored the consistency of God's Word and the usage of clear terms to mean exactly what they say. God meant to say that Yom is a day, 24 hours only. And at the risk of getting ahead of myself, let me say that God established the rotation of the earth on its axis, producing the cyclical succession of days and nights. God knew exactly what He was doing. So immediately He gives us the definitions of what a day is, not uh, these long uh, geological ages during which God used evolutionary processes, no. And by the way, all of this took place, even though the sun was not yet made. Did we need the sun to have a day? No, because the earth was rotating quite fine without it. He was just defining what a day was, and he let us know that uh, the day is is, is, uh, uh, light and the the night is darkness. Or that uh, light is day and the night is darkness. 
Now, here's the question that might be asked. How can you have light without the sun? How can you have light without the sun? Now, the only reason anyone would even ask that question is because of the indoctrination of the theory of evolution that most of us got when we were in public schools. That's why we ask the question, well, how can you have light without the sun? See, most of us were taught that all life depends on the sun and its energy. Well, that's not true. Now, biologically, scientifically, you know, but no, it's not true. God makes it clear that all life ultimately depends upon Him. All life depends upon God. If we believe God created the heavens and the earth, if we believe that God created everything that the Bible tells us here in chapter 1, guess what? We're His creation too. Our life depends upon Him. So here's something else to consider. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Let's go from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible to the next to the last chapter of the Bible. Chapter 21. We're being given the description of the creation of a new heaven and a new earth and, and, a, and a new Jerusalem. And it's a beautiful chapter. It's a beautiful picture. But I want you to notice about the city that is created in verse 23. And it says, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So, who needs the sun? It just makes us sweat. Who needs the sun? When God is our light. When Christ is the very light of the heavenly city, where there will, by the way, be no night any longer. Why? Because now even darkness has been destroyed. Sin, death, darkness, gone. What remains? The light of the glory of Christ. Now, if you believe this of the new heaven and of the new earth and the new Jerusalem... If you believe Revelation 21 for your future, I hope you do. But if you believe Revelation 21 for your future, why not Genesis 1 about the past? You see, this is a crucial question. If the Bible cannot be trusted, I know I've gone over this, but I'm going to, I'm going to go over it again many times as we study creation. But if the Bible cannot be trusted when it tells of creation, how can it be trusted when it tells about salvation? If God cannot be trusted in Genesis chapter 1, how can He be trusted in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, creationists or creation scientists, they point out that all the types of force and energy which interact in the universe only uh, involve only nuclear forces, gravitational forces, and electromagnetic forces. Now, nuclear forces were activated by God the Father when He created the basic matter of the universe. In other words, 
when he spoke everything into existence, all of a sudden uh, atoms and molecules, everything existed. Because God spoke it into existence. So that is nuclear power, nuclear force. Gravitational forces were activated by God the Holy Spirit when he brought form and motion to these materials. How thankful we ought to be to God for gravity. That's keeping us where we are, at least for now. I don't want any gravity on the day of the rapture. I'd like for us to go home just like he says we will. But then, the, the electromagnetic forces were activated by God the Son when he called light into existence. You study electromagnetic science and what are you studying? You're studying about light. Now the absolute efficacy. Now the word efficacy is kind of a 50 cent word. It just means efficiency and usefulness. So the absolute efficacy and finality of God's outgoing word is sufficient evidence for this divine sovereignty. The, effects, the, the efficiency and usefulness of God's word is sufficient evidence for his divine sovereignty in his creation. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 33 and put a little bookmark there because we're going to come back to Psalm 33 in just a little while. Psalm 33, verses 5 through 9. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. You remember when it said he saw the light and it was good. It was good. There's so much good that is still yet in this universe. And even in our world today, though it is a cursed world, you know, I, I, I don't know what uh, scientists, uh, evolutionists, and atheists, and humanists, you know, who they have to thank for the beauty of, of, of the mountains and the trees and the beauty of, of, of uh, the creation as we've seen it. We know who to thank. It says, He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the deep or the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. There's verse 9. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And it does bring us back to verse 4 in Genesis. And keep your finger here in Psalm 33. We'll be back. But in Genesis 1 verse 4, it says, God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. The great American pastor and preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, wrote these profound words concerning this verse. He said, and I quote, in the early days of the race, men went to sleep at nightfall and arose with the dawn. The mark of modern civilization is its artificial light. 
There can be no question that most crimes are committed in the darkness and sinful lusts take their hold when the lights are put out. And then Barnhouse quotes from John 3.21 and he says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And he goes on to say, The reality of our salvation, the reality of our salvation is demonstrated by our love of His light. We are called children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night or darkness. We are children of the light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So seeing the power of His spoken word in creation. Now if you take anything home with you, take this home please. Seeing the power of His spoken word in creation, we need never doubt the power of His written word in our circumstances. You see, I didn't want you to think that this was all about science. Or it was all about winning an argument or a debate. You know what it's all about? It's all about realizing how true God's word is. That if God's word is so true in in the way he created the heavens and the earth, how true is his word when he says to us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. How true is it that John 3.16 all of a sudden becomes that great reality for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Why would they perish anyway? Because of sin. That we will find in the book of Genesis. But have everlasting life. So seeing the power of His spoken word in creation, we need never doubt the power of His written word in our circumstances. Now, open back Psalm 33 and look at verses 18-22. through Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear Him. Upon them that hope in His mercy. I pray for all of these people that we talk about that, uh, that, uh, have, that are convinced you know, that there is no God. That, that there, there's only you know, the evolution and the natural way of things. You know, that there is no miracle uh, power or whatever. Uh, I, I pray for them. Why? So they can come to the truth. Because in essence... And even Richard Dawkins has said this in his own book, The, the God Delusion. That man has real, no real purpose. But God says we do. And only in God do we have hope to understand what that purpose is and what life is all about. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Verse 20, Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let Thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in Thee. The God of creation is still God of our circumstances. The God of creation still is God of our circumstances. The power of His Word is still sufficient for you. Design demands a designer. 
Creation demands a creator. Only the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14.1 Only a fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the wonder of all wonders, the wonder of all wonders is not creation itself. The wonder of all wonders is the Creator Himself. The wonder of wonders is Jesus Christ who came to earth, who took upon Himself flesh to pay the full price for human sin and to make it possible for those who believe in Him to be saved. You see, it's the book of Genesis that will teach us why we are in the state in which we're in as far as a world is concerned. As why why there is so much hatred in this world. Why there is so much evil and wickedness in this world. It all stems from what we learn in this first in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. But the real wonder is Jesus. Therefore, I leave you with this last verse of scripture. You're saying, "Wait a minute." You're not done yet. I am for today. I'll leave you with a scripture from Isaiah 45, verse 22. Why? Because it is God speaking to all of His creation. Not just to the Christian. Not just to the Jew. Not just to the believer. Or the professed believer in the things of God. It is to the whole world. It is... In effect, for the whole of creation, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God. If we learn anything at all from our study in the book of Genesis, please learn that there is God and there is no one else as far as God is concerned. There is God. He's God. No one else. He's the creator. No one else. He's the designer. No one else. No thing else. Nothing. Cannot create. Only God, who is eternal, can create what we see what we have been able to use for life. And then consider that Jesus Christ alone, Jesus Christ alone, is all that we need for life and godliness. Jesus alone. No one else. Thank God that He has given us, so many of us, to be brothers and sisters in Christ 
uh, given us uh, our families, given us what we have. But the bottom line is, our whole trust, our whole faith, our whole belief, our whole sufficiency, our whole dependency is upon Jesus Christ. And you need to know Him. Because this Bible is about Him. From Genesis to Revelation. You need to know Jesus. So let's pray.